Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good afternoon. Uh, this is a great day because today we have officially launched and dedicated the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale. And we've had um, a, a, for a number of alumni a day full of panels discussing global affairs. Uh, all in celebration of the magnificent gift of John and Susan Jackson, who are here with us in the front row uh, this afternoon. The Jackson Institute will be a locus housing our undergraduate international studies major, soon to be reformulated as a global affairs major, and our international relations graduate program, and a convener for discussion of contemporary global affairs both within this campus and around the world. We're very excited about the prospects for uh, this extraordinary uh, institution. We, we have been able to bring to Yale in the first year a number of extraordinary practitioners of, of, of diplomacy and economic policy who are teaching this courses this year, courses that seem to have astonishingly a great interest among students, um, course offered by Stephen Roach on the Chinese economy seems to about 200 students taking it. The Gateway course offered by the director of the new institute, Jim Levinson, also has a comparable enrollment. Um, uh, 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 we're told that approximately half of Yale undergraduates signed up for admission into General McChrystal's seminar. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and only a small number were let in. But in any event, we are, we're very excited about what this does to enliven discussion in the Yale community by bringing people to Yale who are both serious thinkers, but who have practical experience. And so that's a good segue to a serious thinker with practical experience. Um, uh, one of the great privileges of my job is, is I get to work with the Yale Corporation, which I wouldn't say has a monopoly on the most talented and interesting graduates of Yale, but it certainly has a, a remarkable share of such people. <clears throat> and for the past several years, it's been just a great pleasure for me to be able to work on a regular basis with Fareed Zakaria, who is truly one of our most distinguished graduates. Fareed graduated from Yale College in 1986. He uh, went on to Harvard and got a PhD in government. Uh, then at a precocious age of 28, became the editor of Foreign Affairs Magazine. He had held that job for about a decade, about eight years. And then he moved on to Newsweek, where he became the editor of Newsweek International and a weekly columnist. And then, after years of giving his own opinion, uh, he, he, uh, he was signed on with CNN, in the context in which many of you are familiar with him, to become perhaps the best informed, most articulate, and most uh, incisive television interviewer in the area of, uh, of national and international affairs in his uh, Fareed Zakaria Z GPS show. Um, which airs on Sunday nights. Do I have it right with the time slot? You do indeed. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's, um, uh, so we're gonna turn the tables on Fareed today and make him be, uh, be, be the person who is asked the questions. And I'm gonna see if I can do, I used to say my Charlie Rose imitation, <laughs> but now I'm gonna say my Fareed Zakaria <laughs> imitation in asking, in asking him the questions. Okay, so Fareed, Maybe we should tour the horizon a bit in the international domain, since you're, this has been a great interest of yours for a couple of decades. Um, 
uh, and and uh, why don't we start with Iraq? Uh, this is you you, uh, you supported the initial invasion in Iraq in 2003. Became somewhat disenchanted. Initially thought the surge was a bad idea. As a true empiricist, an open-minded person, changed your mind afterward. Um, and now the troops have left. Um, how would you size it up now in, in, in historic perspective? How do you think history will read the Iraq intervention uh, some years from now? How will it seem? Well, you know, when, when, uh, when Kissinger made the opening to China, uh, in his, one of his initial conversations with Chow Enlai, the Chinese premier, he said to him, I don't know what they were, why they were talking about this, but he said to him, what do you think of the French Revolution? And Chow Enlai looked at him and said, it's really too early to tell, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> this, is in, this is in 1973. Um, so I, I do think it's very difficult to look back and, and ask yourself honestly how this will play itself out. Just give you one example you've all lived through. The impeachment of Bill Clinton. The, you, know, you remember this was the absolute pivot uh, uh, that the United States was going through. The passions were so deep. It now really feels like a rather bizarre period in, in American history. And we look back after all the assorted scandals and said, we almost impeached a president over that. Um, Remember, the undergraduates were only seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> that one, I still think they remember. They, you know, um, but, but I think that getting rid of Saddam Hussein has been a, a, a positive thing, both in terms of national security and in terms of uh, immorality. I mean, I think people sometimes forget this was not a garden variety dictatorship. This was one of the worst regimes in the world. Uh, it had, you know, killed, on a conservative estimate, something close to a million, two million people, uh, depending on whether you add in the numbers from the uh, Iran-Iraq war. So, really awful regime that had placed the United States in this unwinnable position where it had this brutal, cruel sanctions regime that was killing 50,000 Iraqi children a year that required a presence in Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, was the reason Osama bin Laden you know, issued his original fatwa against the United States. People now forget the plight of the Palestinian people was number three on his list. The most important reason why Osama bin Laden launched his jihad was that we were occupying Saudi Arabia, which we were doing in order to contain Saddam Hussein. So I do think there are enormous benefits that have come from it. Iraq is, in fact, an open and free society. The Kurdish areas are remarkably free. Increasingly, that's true in the Shia areas. But I think you'd have to be honest and say the costs, do not, uh, the costs outweigh the benefits at this point. The enormous costs of the war in terms of the lives of Americans, the lives of Iraqis, the, the way in which it shattered Iraq, um, it's very difficult to make the case right now that the benefits outweigh the costs. Maybe in the long arc of history, that will change. But right now, I think, um, you know, if anyone had to do it over again and they would still say they, they would invade Iraq, I would suggest that they are not being, either they're not being honest or they are not true empiricists. You know, with no weapons of mass destruction, with it costing a trillion dollars, with the enormous chaos it has uh, put Iraq into. Having said that, I do think we should be trying to work toward a reasonable, successful outcome. Look, when, when Eisenhower uh, concluded the Korean War, he made a decision to leave 50,000 troops in Korea 
because he thought the, the war has ended in this very indecisive manner. But we could stabilize South Korea, and that could yield something positive. And the reality was it took 30 years. South Korea was a complete mess, a very tough, brutal dictatorship until in the 1980s. Uh, but what emerged as a result was a peaceful, stable, increasingly democratic country in a crucial part of the world, which also was hospitable to the West, to America, to American interests. It's not inconceivable that were we to, in some way, get Iraq right with much lower numbers of troops, you could have an outcome that ultimately, 20 or 30 years from now, people will say, you know what? Iraq is a stable, increasingly democratic society in a sea of dictatorships in the Arab world that is a model uh, for other Arab countries. And at that point, I don't know if it still was worth it, but at least you can make the case that the United States has done something that has been good for the world, good for the Middle East, and good for its own interests. Is it stable enough now to survive our reduced commitment, or could it, could it be uh, disrupted by uh, terrorists or opposition to the, to, the, uh, to the regime? My own gut is that it is stable enough. An aide to General Petraeus uh, said to me um, at some point, the, the worst parts of the violence when I was in Iraq, he said the, this, this Iraqi civil war will end once the Sunnis realize that they have lost and the Shia realize that they have won. Meaning at, at some point the Shia will realize they're governing the country. You know, they don't need to be so vengeful and wrathful. And at some point the Sunnis will realize no matter how many terrorist attacks they have, at the end of the day they are 18% of the country and they, won't, they will never get back the, the, the cockpit of power that they had. I think that's basically happened. So you have spoilers and you have you know, occasional militia groups on both sides. What you don't have right now, which would really bring enormous stability, is a national leader who is willing to broaden the, uh, the political compact. And basically, you have a lot of very hardline Shia rulers who feel as though we've been waiting for this chance for 400 years, and God damn it, it's our turn now, and we're going <laughs> to squeeze them as hard as they squeezed us. It's unfortunate. If you had a kind of, I don't know, Washington-like uh, figure, that would change the dynamic dramatically, I think. And, th and then you would, you know, it just shows you how these crucial moments, leadership actually is very important. And Iraq is not blessed with particularly good leadership at this point. Moving eastward to Afghanistan, uh, I think there was much wider consensus upon our initial entry into Afghanistan in the wake of the terrorist attacks on, uh, in uh, September 11, 2001. Uh, but, but, um, we seem to be stuck in a morass there. Uh, it's a country with a history of uh, no outside victors for many centuries. I mean, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Uh, what, what do you see as the prognosis for Afghanistan? My own view is that we should have done something much closer to Vice President Biden's idea, which was the, the central problem in Afghanistan that, that implicates the United States is in terms of national security, is that Al-Qaeda is still active uh, there and in Pakistan, and that if you were to simply withdraw from Afghanistan, it is possible to imagine a renewed, heightened Al-Qaeda uh, presence, camps operating again, planning for terrorist activities again, and in that circumstance, you, know, you will have left behind a festering problem that will, that will come back. 
I believe you could, have dealt, you could deal with that with a combination of some ground presence in Afghanistan. It's not true that you can just go away because you need intelligence. You need to be a player on the ground for people to trust you enough to just give you intelligence. So you would need 30, 40,000 troops, I think. We right now have 150,000 troops and are trying to effectively determine the political outcome of Afghanistan. Uh, it strikes me as a holding pattern. That is to say, we will be able to do it for a while, but we'll be treading water because the minute we leave, you know, it, it's that moment that you, that you realize you can, you can make this work as long as you have 150,000 troops there. But is there a self-sustaining ability to create an independent Afghan you know, security force? Absent, again, a political deal, absent political legitimacy for the government, it's tough, and these things take a long time. So. My own gut would have been try to move to something uh, that looks more like counterterrorism, special operations. It would still be messy. You'd still you lose, lose people in the fight. But most importantly, what you'd be giving up, just to be clear, is there would be parts of Afghanistan you would be ceding to, to bad actors in the short run. You never know how these things work out because the Afghans also will have a fight. It's not as though the Taliban can easily sweep into power in any of these places. There are other forces. There, are, there is spirited resistance. But we'd have to be willing to, to countenance all that. I think Obama has ended up with a, a fairly smart, practical, middle-of-the-road compromise, which is this. He realized that that option, the Biden option, was no longer available to him because the military General uh, McChrystal and Petraeus, essentially boxed him in. They leaked the request that they were making. And for a Democratic president, somebody perceived as a liberal Democratic president, to overturn the military, overrule the military on a core issue of national security, was just not going to be viable. So he couldn't, you know, he couldn't turn them down flat. It would have just politically not, would not been possible. The Republicans would have made enormous hay with it. So what he said to them is, OK, I'll give you, you know, first of all, you know, let me be clear, because there was a range of options. You're going to get the low end of your range, not the high end. And secondly, I, I give you 18 months. Stabilize the country as much as you can, but in 18 months, we're going to draw down to this smaller uh, pro uh, profile. I think that's reasonable. People now say, well, we should just get the hell out of there. Well, even if you did want to get the hell out of there, how fast can you withdraw 150,000 troops? Because remember, there's 50,000 NATO forces. You know, it would take you six months, nine months. In nine months, you're going to begin a process of withdrawal anyway. So I think it's a fairly sensible policy, which gives the, the military some time to train the Afghan army to, you know, to, to in effect, break the momentum of the Taliban. But ultimately, I believe that the, the goal is for us to have a much smaller presence um, in, in Afghanistan. And I think. The broader goal, if you look at Iraq, where he's gone down from 100 to 50, uh, if you look at Afghanistan, where over three years, it's pretty clear we're going to come down. I believe that what you're seeing in is an Obama worldview, which is to rebalance American foreign policy away from these crisis centers where we are stuck trying to adjudicate the disputes between the Sunnis and Shias, which is essentially a dispute that has gone on since the 15th century, where we are trying to you know, negotiate the disputes between the, the Pashtun and the non-Pashtun in Afghanistan, which has gone on for at least the 15th century. Um, Britain was doing exactly this 100 years ago. And to move us out of that role and to spend more time and energy on what is happening in China, what is happening in India, engaging more with Brazil, 
So in a sense, I believe it is an attempt to rebalance away from the past of American foreign policy to the future. And I think he's doing it about as, as sensibly as is possible given political constraints. Hmm. So are you saying that uh, nation building um, in these areas should, should, should be scrapped as a, as a political objective once we're out of these two countries? I think we should, we should encourage it. I think we should um, try to do what we can. But the idea that we could assume responsibility in the way that we did with Japan and Germany, uh, it's just a bridge too far. It's enormously expensive. It's enormously time consuming. It saps the, the, the time, energy uh, of, of the country. And it's not clear that there is a, a big enough security interest that you, know, that you can justify it. Look, the director of the CIA claims that there are 400 members of Al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan. Uh, by some estimates, he believes there may be only 200. And then there are another 400 in Pakistan, which is where they're really operating out of uh, at this point. You have to ask yourself, so if you're talking about something like three or 400, 500 people, do you need 150,000 people at $1 billion per soldier per year, which is what it costs? You know, I mean, that's a lot of money. And that's a lot of our, our time, energy, and attention. I guarantee you that the president's foreign policy time is right now 80% 80, 80 Iraq and Afghanistan. Because when you have American you know, boys and girls out on there risking their lives, of course that becomes the dominant concern. And how much time are you thinking about the strategic relationship with China, which is going to be the pivotal relationship? How much are you thinking about how you build an alliance with India without pissing off the Chinese, which is absolutely crucial. How much are you thinking about what to do about the balance between your relations with Brazil, which are very important, and your relations with Mexico, and how you maintain the balance, which is there's an interesting rivalry beginning in Latin America. You know, he's spending very little time on that. So he's, we've got to get out of the eighth century. Makes a lot of sense. So before I move on to exactly those issues of China, India, Brazil, Mexico, Let's uh, just, just are, you, are, you, if you, if you, are you also saying that, that uh, counterterrorism should no longer be, as it was for the past decade, the principal objective of U.S. foreign policy? It's a, it's a very good question, Rick. I think the way I would put it is counterterrorism should continue to be a dominant concern of, of the American national security establishment. I strongly believe that al-Qaeda is a much weaker force than it was in, on 9-11. And I think this is for a combination of two reasons. One, we've gone after them. We've chased them around the mountains of Afghanistan. We've bombed them in Pakistan. We track their money. We follow these people around. We don't let them go into countries. This is all working. The second part is they have been spectacularly foolish in what they have done. They have overreached. They've killed locals in all these countries from Saudi Arabia to Egypt to Morocco. And that pisses locals off. Guess what? It's, 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 fu it's fine to give tacit support for you know, some distant group that seems to be killing Americans and soldiers and Westerners, and it all sounds great, and you can seem fashionable and talk about the Palestinian cause. When they start killing Saudis, and I was in Saudi Arabia a week after the attack, all of a sudden they say, my god, these are radicals. These are horrible people. You know, they're, they're, they're bigots. They're extremists. We've got to do something about them. And so those two things are very crucial to al-Qaeda's weakness. We should keep the pressure on. But as an intellectual construct, I think that, I think that there's something, we, 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 have, we have overdone this, uh, this kind of clash of civilizations, this war on terror. I've just been reading Tony Blair's 
memoirs. I keep mentioning people who have a Yale association. Ms. McChrystal, Tony Blair. That's part of your, your imperial reach that you've kind of <laughs> been able to, uh, you know. I'm trying to think of somebody who doesn't have a Yale connection. Um, Tough. And, you know, absolutely brilliant politician, but clearly 9-11 had this effect of transforming his worldview where you know, it's all, everything becomes part of this great struggle. And to me, the, my favorite example of that is, so he, in a throwaway line about Chechnya, about talking to Putin about Chechnya, he says, and I understand that at core they have a, a problem of a violent, vicious secessionist movement that uh, is at core is, uh, one of is, is Islamic extremism. Now, you know, where to begin? I mean, the Chechens were brutally incorporated into the Russian Empire in, in 1865, I think, after 45 years of violent struggle. The Russian, you know, they've been trying to secede ever since on purely nationalist grounds. The Russians treated them brutally. Stalin deported the entire population of Chechnya to Central Asia. They then try, have, been, try, have been trying in those last 10 years. The Russian army has killed 100,000 civilians in Chechnya. And yes, now they have a bit of a problem with Islamic extremism. <laughs> but you know, it, to, to, to talk about it in those terms is to miss something. And I fear is that when we just look at the world through this war on Islamic extremism, we're missing a lot of the, the nuance. Well, there, okay, so let's take your assumption as, as correct that Al-Qaeda is uh, much diminished and the actual terrorist involvement um, is reduced. But, but Tony Blair would argue there's still a long-term threat because of religious fundamentalism actually on all sides. I mean, in yeah. Israel, in, in yeah. the Muslim world, uh, in US domestic politics from uh, fundamentalist Christians, that, that all of the, these, that, that, the, that there's a role in diplomacy for uh, somehow getting these groups to be brought into the more, more into the mainstream. Do you think that should be a serious concern of U.S. politics? I think it should be. A, I think it should be a concern. I think let's be stop being politically correct. There is no great danger of terrorism coming out of fundamentalist Christians and of fundamentalist Jews. No, the, no, no, the real no. problem is no. Islamic uh, uh, extremism. But I do think there there is a tendency to, uh, and you see this again in Blair's memoirs, to conflate everything. You know, so that. There is a great problem of the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. I mean, the India I grew up in, you, you, in, in Bombay, you would not see a lot of women wearing veils. You see many more now. If you go, the first time I went to Cairo in 1974, you would have to search to find a woman wearing a veil. Today, it's the opposite. You'd have to search to find a woman not wearing a veil. But that is not the same as terrorism. There is not. a broader rise of religiosity in these, in these societies, probably a backlash against globalization and modernity. But the veil is not the suicide belt. And it's very sure. important we make that distinction. So every time we see this, and, they, you know, and they, they seem so other, and they're wearing these black robes, and you're sure that they're all you know, terribly backward. I don't know. I think, again, we should worry about what is worth worrying about, which is people who are trying to kill us. And to the extent that women in Islamic societies want to cover their hair, you know, I mean, I. I think, it, in my own view, it is not a step forward for women's liberation, but you know, that'll work itself out in those, those societies. Here, here. Uh, so uh, before we leave this part of the world, just maybe a few words about Iran, which um, you know, you've written about that and about how you don't think it would be very fruitful to try to undermine the current regime. You want to elaborate a little bit on what, what you think about our role toward Iran should be. Sure, and I think it's very important to, uh, to, to 
go back to first principles with Iran and first remind ourselves this is a country that is you know, a mid middling regional power. Uh, Iran's GDP is about $182 billion. To give you some perspective, the Pentagon's budget is $700 billion. So we spend militarily about three times, three and a half times their entire annual um, GDP. Um, Iran has not invaded a foreign country in 150 years. Um, it has, by and large, behaved in a perfectly rational manner. That does not mean a one that is to our liking. I mean by that a calculating manner. Uh, they have opportunistically advanced their interests when they could, and they have not. The central issue that people worry about, and I understand the worry, is Iran's attitude towards Israel. I would argue that if you look at what's going on, it is, Iran is making a bid for leadership in the Middle East. And for a Persian Shia country to make a bid for leadership in the Middle East, the only way they can credibly do that is to appropriate the main cause of the Arab world, which is the Palestinian cause. And so they have achieved something remarkable, which is you go to Cairo and you will find on the streets of Cairo photographs of Ahmadinejad, a, a Shiite Persian, as the great hero of the Sunni masses. Now, why is he doing this? Because he is trying to prevent the Egyptian government from mounting a serious anti-Iranian containment policy. It, you notice the Egyptian government does not denounce Iran much publicly. They hate them privately. They are constantly urging the United States to attack Iran, but they will not say that publicly because on their street people say, wait a minute, Ahmadinejad is the great hero of the Palestinian cause. You see the same dynamic, by the way, um, now with Turkey. It is fascinating to watch what's happening in the Middle East, which is that there are two countries making a bid for leadership of the Arab world, neither of which happen to be Arab. It is Iran, Iran and, and Turkey. Turkey. And the Turks also discovered exactly the same thing, which is we need to have street cred. And to have street cred means to take on the Palestinian cause. And so the, the Turkish president is doing it. I deplore it because it's a kind of cheap populism. But it does not mean that they want to, you know, they want to bomb Israel. Israel has 250 nuclear weapons. It has a second strike survivable capacity. The people running Iran are busy ferreting away money in Dubai bank accounts so that their children and grandchildren can have trust funds. These are not people who are about to create the end of their days. You know, I mean, this is a very calculating, corrupt regime. So for all those reasons, I think it can be contained. It can be deterred. Look, people forget Mao was totally bonkers. I mean, people, Mao, Mao, would, <laughs> Mao would routinely talk about ending half the world because the other half at least would be communist. You know, that out of the ruins of a world war would come communism. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't think that meant that he couldn't be, well, some people did think that he couldn't be contained, but history has proven them wrong. And Stalin was containable, and the Pakistanis are containable. I mean, all these countries have nuclear weapons, and at the end of the day, we, we understand it's a difficult uh, dilemma, but you can deter and contain them. There is something bizarre about the view that the Iranians alone uh, have this, you know, kind of genetic, uh, condition which will make them commit suicide, mass suicide. We got a little worried about Khrushchev in 1962, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. That was before, Wait, this, before you're your sacrificing time. sacrificing Cuban lives before, more you, than before I, your time. The, um, well, well, okay, so finally in this region, is, uh, is, is this Hillary's chance to really make a mark with, with Israel-Palestine discussions? Might, might this be the, the, a great capstone for her career to actually negotiate something there? Well, 
you know, nobody has ever lost money betting against the Middle East peace process. So uh, I think that if you, were, if you were betting, you know, it's pretty clear what you should do in terms of the odds. If it happens, I'll say this. I don't think it'll be Hillary Clinton who will make it happen another year graduate. Um, I think that ultimately this depends on Israel. Israel is the power on the ground. Israel has the land. Uh, and the hopeful sign is there are two hopeful signs. One, uh, Bibi Netanyahu seems to have decided that, you know what, maybe I can do a Nixon goes to China. Exactly. Maybe this time there is this possibility. And he's speaking in a different way over the last few weeks yes. than he has before. So right. something there has changed, and that's very hopeful. And the second is Israel is doing so damn well. You know, I mean, Israel, if you look at the Israeli economy, it's, it's, it is on steroids. It is, you know, this has become, there's this book, book out uh, called Startup Nation. The, Israel has more listed NASDAQ companies than, uh, than any country other than the United States. It's just new Silicon Valley. It is. I mean, and it's extraordinary. It's actually, I, I have a theory about this, by the way, which is, you know how Russia, people thought was going to be a very promising economy and has turned out to be terrible, and Israel was this kind of socialist economy and it's turned out to grow like gangbusters? Well, about a million and a half Russian Jews <laughs> moved from Russia to Israel. <laughs> and basically all the smart people in Russia went to Israel and started businesses there. Some, of them, lost. some of them bought oil and mineral deposits and stayed in Russia. <laughs> the rest went to Israel. That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, those who could became oligarchs in Russia, the other one and a half million went, went to Israel. But it's actually true. If you look at the startup, the Silicon Valley, uh, phenomenon, it's all Russian immigrants, and mm -hmm. they're all technically trained, they have some engineering background. Um, so if, if there's hope, it's that. Now, the downside is, and actually this is related, uh, the Russian immigrants are also pretty tough characters. They're not particularly accommodating. They have, you know, they, they have a kind of Soviet style of dealing with politics, and that, the, you see that in the foreign minister, Abigdor Lieberman, who is talking about population transfers, uh, which is, you know, truly remarkable thing to hear an Israeli foreign minister talking about the forcible expulsion uh, of people uh, without, their, you know, without their permission. I, mean, I, I think I'm right in saying the last time that has happened in a significant way was uh, with Germany and, and Czechoslovakia in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. That is the, the, the forced expulsion uh, of the, of, you know, during the annexation of Sudetenland was the was the only time I can remember where you draw borders around people and tell them, you know, kind of run around. Um, so it's, it's, it's very sad that you're hearing that come out of Israel. Um, well, it wasn't forced, I suppose, during the partition in, of, in, of India and Pakistan, but it was. It wasn't forced, it, right, right. Was, there, there are many cases where people have been told to leave, but right. yeah, but, but for, for, and for a modern democracy to be saying, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna disenfranchise tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people um, but don't you think this will ultimately lead Israel to some accommodation? I mean, they're going to have to deal with the fact their population is going to be a majority uh, non-Jewish population over a couple of decades or so. My gut is yes. My gut is that ultimately Israel is, ultimately Israel is a democracy. And it cannot sustain its democratic character with three million people ruled against their wishes in these you know, particularly in Gaza, Gaza, fairly appalling conditions. And I think that if the Palestinians had always played on the, if the Palestinian strategy had been to shame the Israelis, I believe there would be a Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. um, 
because the, the reality is it is a democracy. And ultimately, I don't think they can live with this. But it may take a while. OK, well, let's talk about China and, in, and or India. What, uh, maybe China first. Um, this, you, uh, you've written in your most recent book, Post-American World, that America is going to have to learn how to share power gracefully in an appropriate way, that it can still be a leader, but it won't be the exclusive hegemon of global affairs. Um, China looked set until actually the last year or so as though they were embarked on a course um, of what they call the peaceful rise. And the last year, they seem to have gotten a bit more belligerent, at least ec both economically and militarily. Do, do, what's going sure. on? Do you, do you agree with that characterization? Yeah, and, yeah. and I think there are two things going on. Um, the first is they have had a spectacular crisis. You know, um, I mean, if there's one country that has come out of this crisis, uh, renewed, reinvigorated, it is China. Um, not just because they grew at 9% last year and they'll probably grow even faster this year, but if they look at it, and I'm, this, you know this is how the Chinese look at these things because they're very thoughtful and calculating about it. They look at the last 10 years and they ask themselves, how did we handle, you know, our our economy and how did the United States, the leading country in the world that they always looked up to handle it. So the, the Chinese over the last 10 years did three things. When the country was growing at what they considered an excessively fast pace, they raised interest rates to take down some of the growth, to take down some of the froth. They tightened credit. In the two years before the economic crisis, they tightened credit 13 times. And they built up a budget surplus because they figured when the wheel turns, we'll need ammunition. So let's have some, you know, let's have some surplus in the bank. And when the wheel did turn, as you know, they lowered interest rates, they eased up on consumer credit, and they spent a lot of money. Their, their stimulus is 10 times larger than ours as a percentage of GDP. Right. So it's the largest fiscal stimulus as a percentage of GDP that I can, I mean, certainly since World War II, That's right. if you call that a fiscal stimulus. Um, so they look at that and then think, what did the Americans do at that same period? Well, when we were growing fast, we lowered interest rates to, to goose the economy, to get a little more juice out of it. Uh, we eased up on credit in every form, but particularly in housing credit, where you know, the goal of the Bush administration was to add two, three, four million more houses, which plainly meant you were telling Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, give people houses that they can't afford. Uh, and finally, we destroyed the federal budget. If you think about between the Bush tax cuts, the prescription drugs for the elderly, and the two wars, you created, and without any taxes to pay for any of it, you created a 5% structural deficit yeah. in the American budget, right. which meant that when you got the crisis, you, you know, and tax revenues collapsed, you're now at 10%. So the Chinese look at this and say, who should be lecturing whom about yeah. the world? You know? Who, who, who should be, you know, who should be paid political risk to be invested in? We should be paying political risk to invest in America, not, not the other way around. And there is that arrogance creeping into China justifiably. So I was talking to a Chinese official, senior official, who said to me, um, you know, Hank Paulson used to come here in both of his old jobs, when he was head of Goldman Sachs and he was Secretary of Treasury, and he keep lecturing us on how the Chinese needed to learn from the Americans about restructuring their financial industry. And he paused and said, I don't think we'll be getting any of those lectures anytime soon. <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, that's how they now view the world. So it is different. 
Yeah, and you know, it's it's. Uh, it, it, you, I I hesitate even to call it arrogance because it is a confidence based on a fair reading of the facts. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to say I agree with that. What what about there? What about the military uh, moves and the sort of claims on the South China Sea and the the, the stronger right. the stronger um, uh, attempt to show that kind of strength as well as economic strength. But there what you're seeing is something very interesting, which is the Chinese are trying to figure out what is our national security? What is our national, they all know if you talk to Chinese leaders, they'll all say, well, we need a larger role in the world. We need to, a seat at the table. But they don't quite know what that means. You know, what, what is their position on Iranian nuclear weapons? What is, I mean, they have, they have pro forma positions, but they do not have a thought through vision of what their broader interests are. What they do have is a fairly clear sense of what their narrower interests are, which is Chinese foreign policy basically is about two things right now. It's about securing natural resources that they need and Taiwan. If you look at their votes on the, at the UN, those are the only two things that they see have any consistent you know, application on. Everything else, they basically abstain or they give the Americans what they want or they don't, you know, the only things they care about passionately are those things. And on the first, which is the natural resources, they are very clearly expanding their, their sphere. And if you look at the way in which they are building their navy, it is to secure those trade routes. If you look at where they are building ports, either leasing or building them, it is a chain of ports around India, basically, mm -hmm. which is not so much a you know, kind of aggressive move toward India. It is an attempt to create an unbreakable link uh, to, of, to, to the Africa and the Persian yeah. Gulf. They are trying to create routes for their, you know, for their raw materials coming out of Africa and for their energy supplies. Uh, at this point, you know, the South China Seas are, is going to be a place where I would guess, I, I'm, I'm guessing at this point, but half of world trade is probably passing through now and probably two-thirds of world trade will pass through in the next 20, 25 years. So who secures that becomes as important as the Atlantic used to be, uh, you know, in the previous two or 300 years. And the Chinese are very determined to make sure that they are the principal player there. And that bumps up against our interest. You know, India, uh, the United States has always said that we believe in a balance of power in Asia. We don't really mean that. We believe in a massive imbalance of power in our favor. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the Chinese are actually trying to change that. So if you were Obama, would you let him have the South China Sea? I think this is going to be the great challenge of Obama's foreign policy and the next president after that, which is how to accommodate China enough that you don't give them a sense that they're being locked out of the international system, but at the same time draw some lines so that there is also a deterrent func function. My own sense is that what they are asking for right now in, the, in these actions is not objectionable. That it, first of all, you can't actually stop them. The Sri Lankan government is signing, you know, is made doing a deal with them to build a port. The Pakistani government is doing a deal with them to do a port. How do you, you can't really stop that. But also, we shouldn't really stop that. It, it is understandable that they want secure energy and raw material supplies. I think that what we should be trying to do is two things. One, make clear that you know, we would regard the use of force to, to resolve the Taiwan issue, to resolve any border dispute, uh, either in the South China Seas and crucially in India uh, on the, on the Indo-Chinese yes. border as unacceptable, uh, but also involve them in a greater sense of, of kind of solving some of these problems. And the great mismatch right now in the world is that you have the United States and some Western countries that have this kind of collective order conception of the world where we want other countries to join in, to 
create common goods to solve common problems, whether it's nuclear, nuclear proliferation, whether it's climate change. And you have the Chinese and honestly the Indians and Brazilians as well, who are not in that kind of post-national collective security mentality. They're very much modern countries on the rise, thinking about things in national interest terms, not international interest mm -hmm. terms. And you know, they, they don't see anything wrong with the assertion of their, their parochial national interests. And that's as true, by the way, for Brazil as it is for China. I mean, the Brazilians, if you look at the way in which they've been dealing with the Middle East, where they're trying to, to get a kind of privileged uh, position by signing deals with Ahmadinejad and such, this is all an attempt to create a kind of Brazilian uh, national, you know, foreign policy. We're going to have to get over that because the truth of the matter is you do need these larger countries thinking in broader terms. Our best bet is honestly with the, with the Chinese because the Chinese do get this. You know, I mean, I think Tom Friedman wrote in his column today, the nice thing about going to China is you, know, you don't have to have a big debate about climate change because these guys are all engineers. They, you know, they understand science. And similarly, you know, they understand the, the value of having uh, some degree of collective problem solving. But it bumps up, when it bumps up against the Chinese national interest, they are very jealous of their sovereignty. Um, they're very, very, and very zealous in guarding that sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And India, your home country, uh, they've survived the crisis perhaps second best of all. And, and yeah, the, the Indians survived the crisis second best of all. I think that's fair to say. Also, by the way, very good, very good uh, uh, management of, uh, of their economic policy. One of the people who, uh, <laughs> who managed India's economic policy, Rakesh Mohan, is in the second row. Mm -hmm. So he's probably one of those people gloating inside while, while uh, you know, courteously receiving American visitors who'd lecture him on financial reform. Um, <laughs> And by, and by the way, the other, the other the reason both China and India did very well is they both have very, um, you know, you could see this, and, and I should ask you this, but my sense was after a couple of months of the crisis when, you know, there was no money anywhere, it all fled, the Indians and Chinese sort of shake themselves off and say, wait a minute, we don't have any subprime problems, we don't have right. any overextended consumers, why are we declining? And suddenly you see that all these markets start going back up, the economy, so the confidence comes back to the system. Because fundamentally, they were healthy. The markets came back, but China did experience a very dramatic drop in, in, in uh, its exports because right. of the drying right. up of right. the markets abroad. So they, had, they used right. a very effective fiscal stimulus to, right. to uh, bring themselves out. Right, and India didn't need to because it was less reliant on less, exports, exactly. more reliant on domestic consumption. Exactly. But I think that fundamentally, the Indians are natural allies of the United States because the single, the most important geopolitical fact in the world right now is the rise of China. And in terms of that geopolitical fact, the Indians and the, the United States are on the same side. That is to say, they both hope it happens peacefully. They welcome it because it adds to a kind of greater global prosperity. But they are wary and want to be sure that there is some uh, hedging strategy that is possible. Now, that said, the problem you will find in India, in my opinion, is a very difficult uh, country to deal with very prickly, lots of post-colonial issues. There's still a uh, unreconstructed left in India that believes it is absolute heresy for the, you know, for the president of the, of the United States to be given a red carpet reception in India. This is not large, and I think that by and large the Indian, uh, certainly the, the civilian community, that is the non-governmental community, is very pro-American and engaged. In fact, if you saw, there have been opinion polls, you know, these Pew surveys, and 
the Indians have consistently been the, num the, the number one or number two most pro-American country in the world. Mm -hmm. That is the, the average person. But that's not, you know, there is a old uh, bureaucracy that uh, Rakesh Mohan used to battle with when he was in government that is still very, you know, it's very tough to, to, to do deals with. And it's, there's an old, there's a real left in India that is, you know, there's a, still a real communist party that believes it is the original heir to Maoism. And, they, you know, and this is not a joke. I mean, you know, you, you keep wishing they would actually go and see what the Maoists are doing in China because, uh, you know, that's, so it's going to be not as seamless a, an alliance or relationship as one might imagine. So, but nonetheless, India is likely to be a friend and China is in, increasingly problematic and difficult to manage the bilateral relationship. But has to be a partner. But if it yeah. becomes a rival, you end up in a very different world. And I think you really don't want that. Yeah. Agreed. So how, do, how, how, how will that play out? Because right now, Congress, uh, uh, there's a lot of popular sentiment in the United States uh, uh, against China, even, even some slippage in the administration on questions like the exchange rate yeah. in terms of wanting to be confrontational now instead of, I mean, I realize there's an election coming in three months so and this might pass. I'll months. turn the question around. Just start us off with the exchange rate. What should we think about the exchange rate issue? Paul Krugman writes, this is, this is simple. They are subsidizing their, their manufacturers at the, and, and the American worker is paying the price. Send Congress should do something. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's arguing yeah. for very tough, even yeah. tariff-like yeah. retaliation. What do you think? Other economists would say if they're subsidizing consumption goods that we get, send them a thank you note. So, so <laughs> would those other economists include Rick Levin? And, uh, and um, is there any lasting damage done? Wait a minute, who's interviewing you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're too good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This is important. Uh, is, are there, is there any lasting damage done to the U.S. economy by having China have an artificially, uh, an artificial exchange rate, artificially low? Probably not considerable damage, in my view. You know, uh, if China, if China raised the exchange, revalued, um, you know, American, it, it's not going to dramatically increase American exports to China. And we're, and, we're, and we're still going to be, because of our very, high, very low savings rate, a massive net importer. So, so uh, you know, the, the, way to, the way to get more employment in this country is domestic stimulus. There, I agree with Paul Krugman, at least halfway. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We, we need direct job creation, and, but we also need to, what will never happen politically, but what would be the right thing economically, is job creation now coupled with credible moves to raise the fiscal deficit in years three to five, right. like right. raising the social security retirement age, like introducing, you know, high, you know, God forbid, higher tax rates or a value-added tax or some other right. means of addressing the structural deficit, which has so, to be addressed. So, so I, and I'm not really turning the tables here because I'm gonna, I'm gonna posit a statement and then see, see whether you agree. One of the things in this, in this, uh, <laughs> You've got, you've got somebody this, this smart out here. It would be absurd <laughs> for me to just let him uh, ask questions. Um, one of the things that is taking place in the, right now that I feel that Americans aren't in, uh, sufficiently aware of is the increasingly competitive global landscape. 
so that if you look at what our corporate tax is, it is now, you know, it was 20 years ago, the lo lowest in the industrialized world, it's now the second highest. If you look at our regulatory environment, you know, there are alternatives and options, whether they are London, Geneva, Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, uh, perhaps in, in, you know, in the next phase, Mumbai, certainly Australia, Canada. Um, and that is a world that hasn't existed before, that there are just so many different options. Sure. And I don't get the sense that we as a society are sufficiently attuned to that reality and are trying to ask ourselves, how do we place ourselves in a position where we are competitive? Well, lowering corporate tax rates would not be politically popular, particularly with Democrats, but in truth, were it coupled with other moves that raised, that, that raised federal revenues, yeah. it would actually be a smart right. mix because we, we, are not, we, we do lose location decisions because of our high corporate tax rates. Companies and, and, and I look at, you know, the, the, biggest, um, the biggest IPO out there right now has been the, the announcement of, of Petrobras, the Brazil's petroleum company. And Steve uh, Roach can probably speak to this better than I can, but who got the, which investment bank got the, you know, got the contract? A Chinese bank. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, this was, I can tell you there must have been people, there must have been hundreds of people at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley who worked for weeks trying to get this deal. And it, you know, this is a very tough thing to execute. This is not easy stuff. Uh, largest private equity deal in the last yeah. uh, three months was a Brazilian private equity group buying Burger King. You know, it really is a new world where it's, you know, we used to think that we in the West, where we have the, we have the, the, the capital and we have the know-how. But now they have the capital and they already know how. And, uh, you know. Wasn't your subtitle the rise of the rest? Yeah. And didn't you, yeah. And didn't you say we should welcome this and embrace it? Oh, I no, mean, we are, but, but we have to adapt to it. And I fear yeah. that there is a real, I just don't get the feeling that people, you know, un understand that it's a, it's a very different landscape it, it, today. It is a very that even it was 10 years ago. You know, I mean, I see. Come, I think that there is going to be a major bank that's going to move to Singapore in the next 15 years as its headquarters, and that's going to be a kind of shock to the system that you can actually imagine that happening. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. So, what would you? How would you go about if you if you if you could if you could do this, uh, addressing the 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 various um, you know the recovery from the economic crisis from the vantage point of the United States? You know, I mean, I agree with you probably some fiscal uh, stimulus is necessary in the short term. But my problem with that is, at the end of the day, what you're hoping to do is provide a bridge to get people spending again. 70% of the American economy is consumption. So the government can spend for only so long before at some point private sector spending has it. Particularly people have to start spending because companies are only going to spend when they see demand right. and that demand is only going to be created when the consumer starts spending again. And I think there is something again here that's that is dramatically changed. We've come off a 25-year binge, an expansion of credit. The consumer is shell-shocked. The savings rate, which was, you know, everybody said Americans don't save, it's back up to 6%. Who knows where it, it could go even higher. In my opinion, it would be a very rational decision for people to allow it to go a little bit higher, exactly. you know, just to, who knows what the world is going to be like, you rebuild your balance sheet. And in that context, I don't know that, you know, you can't just keep spending forever. And so at some point you have to transition to a set of strategies that really reset the economy, get you, frankly, less reliant on consumer spending, more reliant on investment and exports, 
And what does that mean? To, you know, to my mind, it's all the hard stuff. You know, we've fudged all the hard stuff for the last 30 years. Our secondary school system has collapsed. We, we pretended that was not a problem. Science and technical education has collapsed in this country. We pretended that wasn't a problem. We've come up with a whole bunch of cheap, short-term solutions to them, like, you know, we don't produce any scientists or engineers anymore, don't worry, we'll just skim the world's best. We'll just take, you know, the best immigrants from the world, they get trained in, in, their, in their countries and they can come here. Actually, we've been doing that since the 1930s. Right, absolutely, Hitler yeah. began it. No. It was the was greatest gift Hitler ever, ever, ever made to the, you know, the United States. But, you, you know, at some point you can't avoid the reality that your secondary school system has collapsed and that your science and technical education has collapsed and that, you know, you're, you're, you have created this massively, uh, this completely inflated housing sector because I mean, if you look at what we do in housing, right, we, we have the mortgage deduction for interest, which is a $100 billion subsidy a year. You have non-recourse loans, which is absurd. Well, you know, it's the one area you can just walk away from your loan and it's the bank's problem. You have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac pumping money in. And then we're surprised that you get a housing crisis. And, you know, we've been rich enough and we've been like sitting on Mount Olympus. It didn't matter what we did. We could screw up because the rest of the world was so far behind. But they're not so far behind. And that's, that's what I feel. We just, it's stuff we understand, you know. We've got to start living within our means and educating properly and teaching our kids the, you know, the, 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 the simple things like, you know, how do you make stuff that the rest of the world wants? But it's all very hard, very painful, and nobody gets elected saying that. So the debate right now is between fiscal stimulus and tax cuts, which, by the way, is a, another form of fiscal stimulus. The Republicans don't realize when they say tax cuts, they, they're also being Keynesians. It's just another kind of Keynesianism. But it's not a long-term solution to the problem. Yeah. Well, let me, let me just, I, I want to yeah, get yeah, back yeah, to yeah. education, but let me just take up that last point. It's not true, it's not true in a deep recession where there's too much leverage that a tax cut and, a, and, a, uh, and direct spending to employ people is fiscally equivalent. It's not. True. There's because no stimulus. The will save the because if you give cut. people a tax cut, yes. they'll save it. Yes. And, the mar yes. and the multiplier effect from fes yes. federal stimulus depends on the marginal propensity to consume. Yeah. No, agree. And, agree. And, and so if you, but if you take a person from an unemployed state and put that person in an employed state, the marginal, yes. Yes. you know, a big fraction of that dollar is right. going to get spent. And so that's why as fiscal long as stimulus. You can keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's and, the problem. But, but, well, you know, we've got two and a half million unemployed construction workers. For example, you could just double down on all the existing construction projects currently run by state, federal, and local authorities and put people and, and get a lot of people to work with a multiplier effect maybe of two. So maybe you get three, four million jobs out of, out of, out of, out of a yeah, point. But how long do you, could you do that? And at yeah. some point, the market does begin to worry about your, your you know, the, the budget. You've got, to combine, you've got to combine it, right, like I with said, the long -term. with the long-term moves yeah. for it to be credible. No, I have a feeling if we were sol solving this, with you'd put a value-added tax in, yeah. you'd cut corporate taxes, exactly. you'd raise so Social Security you retirement, and yeah. you empower the Medicare Commission so that it can make real Actually, cost savings. We're 100% yeah. insane. Um, <laughs> so if, if we were Wenjabao, we could get it done, right? But yeah, we, have yeah. a little, we have a little problem called the U.S. Congress that doesn't see eye to eye with this view. Um, come back to education. Do you really think, I, 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 I'm really of two minds about this. How broken is our, our educational system, broadly speaking? I mean, we see, of course, we see the cream of the crop. But I don't hear people in the good state universities talking about the decline 
of the students they're seeing. I, 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 think that, I think underneath what appears to be in the aggregate a decline of the educational system is, are actually income disparities. And, and, that, and that the fact that we are much less egalitarian in our distribution of income than Europe or South Korea or Japan. That, that, what, we're, that what we're seeing is very low performance from low income families, rural and inner city uh, children, and, school, and really substandard schools there, and perfectly, ex frankly, by national, international standards, perfectly acceptable schools in much of America. Um, and so <coughs> I, I just think that the, our performance on these comparative tests and so forth probably masks what's actually more fundamental problem with income distribution in this country. Well, uh, let's begin by saying you're looking at, at Yale, the cream of the cream of the cream That's of true. the cream of the cream. So it's a very non-representative oh, No, 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 sample, I understand that. Right? Um, the, whenever people tell me that, that the data are, you know, are bad or that you know, the test is actually more common, I always say, yeah, but 30 years ago, we used to do well on all these scores. So then we didn't mind it so much. When you start finding faults with the studies because you're doing badly at them and saying, well, the tests are wrong, you know, yes, all that is true. So I agree with you that there's a big disparity. Actually, actually, the PISA tests, which are the ones that are used to compare across nations, uh, we've done badly since they were introduced. The well, the, but, the, but, the, but the PISA tests are not the only one, right? You have percentage of college graduates, which is the most important. When we were to lead the world in percentage of college graduates from the beginning of the 20th century till about 10 years ago, we're now seventh or eighth, I think, on, on the list. Um, science and technical education, you look at that. I, but my basic point, you, Rick, would be, I agree with you. Probably the top 40% of the schools in America are really good. Maybe another 20% are adequate. But that still leaves you that's what, yeah. with 30% sure. of the, I mean, that's a very large part of the, and, and Totally these, agreed. And if you ask yourself, what is hollowing out the American economy, it's the fact that you have all these people who just can't be employed. You know, you know there are right now with a 15% unemployment rate, real unemployment rate, if you count the people who stop looking, there are five million jobs in this country, job openings that cannot be filled because they cannot find people who have the skills. To me, this is the most startling statistic about America today. There are five million job vacancies that cannot be filled right now. And you know, that, that's, we're, we're a third of our schools are producing right. dysfunctional people. You're, you're right, it drags down the average. If you were to look at Scarsdale High, you know, my guess is those guys do as well as the Singaporeans. Yeah, right? absolutely. But the other ones are still, they're, you know, yeah. they're all part of America. But it does suggest that a policy maybe ought to be targeted in, in, in those communities with the, with, 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 that need the help the most. And what would you say the answer is? Because one, one answer I've heard is, well, the reason that the top third of the country does well is because, frankly, you throw a lot of money at it. I mean, that those, those, those schools are very generously funded. But the, but the bottom third are not. Actually, I don't think the evidence supports that. I think, yeah. there's, I think the per capita expenditure is, is more even. It's, it comes from Broken family background, yeah. you know, uh, income, uh, you know, what's the culture in the home. So the, you know, the, where the intensive work is needed, I think, is low-income people. One way to help that is to employ more people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. just for starters. You, but how would you react to this? I was very taken up, a couple of years ago, Alan Blinder wrote a piece, uh, the economist who's the vice chairman of the Fed, on uh, globalization. And he said, you know, we've all said globalization is great, free trade is great, and it helps everybody. But you know, actually it doesn't help everybody, because while there's people at the top who are gonna do fantastically, and there are 
some jobs that can't get outsourced. You know, you have to, you have, to have drivers and cooks and cleaners and people who you know, run gyms or all those kind of things. There's a huge portion of people in Western societies in the middle who's, who are in effect in an international competition now. Right. And the downward pressure on their wages from the fact that you have a billion people around the world now participating in that labor market is very real and it's very profound. And I don't, I think this is the great anxiety of the American middle class yeah. that you're seeing in the Tea Party, you're seeing, and I don't think either party has a solution to it. And I don't know what, I don't know that there is a solution to it. Right? There are a mil yeah. billion yeah. people yeah. doing those jobs. Yeah, that's right. And the, and, the, and the real wage of the, certainly the factory worker in this right. country has been flat or declining for 25, 30 years. Yeah, and it'll now go into the white collar industries because you have the same, yeah. I mean, as I was saying. So the, if, if the Chinese bank gets the biggest IPO in the world, what happens to their wages? And you know, I mean, this, you play that out, multiply it by a thousand, and you, you see where this is going. And it's, you know, I think it causes huge anxiety. Um, so we need to innovate, no? Yeah, we, we, well, we need to innovate, but can, can innovation alone get you mass employment? I don't know, I'm, I mean, I ask that. Um, uh, maybe not, but it can get you, it can get you wealth that generates spending right. and that gets you some employment. You know, I mean, yeah. it's you know, obviously it doesn't. It's 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 an important part of the puzzle, but where we have our still have our natural advantage. I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's and and I think that we, maybe we should be focusing all our energies on that. You know, look, these are the things we do well. You know, innovation, uh, creation of new industries, allocation exactly. of capital to those exactly. places rapidly. Free those up as much as you can. You know, double down on your on your um, on the things that work in the society. Funding the, research at universities. Funding, right? No, no. I, <laughs> I actually think corporate which, R and D which might is, be well, more. Which is an extremely yeah, important yeah. piece of that nexus. Well, if right? you think about it, you know, if you if you imagine that we that we're right, that the only hope here is innovation, and we're in a post-industrial economy, and we have to move up the value chain. We are now spending not even what the Cold War average was on R&D, right? We're a little bit under it. A little under it, right. But, which is 3% of GDP, right, or something right. like that? Right. Maybe we should be thinking to ourselves, well, actually, in today, in this kind of world, we should be spending 5% of GDP. You know, that, that we need to raise the bar because that's the only place. When we were spending 3%, we still had a massive steel industry. We you know, still had a massive, you know, aluminum industry. We had all these blue-collar jobs. Actually, the gone. share that's declined is the federal share. It used to be about 1.5% of each. Uh, federal private, and, and, private and, federal. and public, and now it's a 1% federal and 1.5% yeah. or 1.7% right. private. And by the way, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't want to get too much in the weeds in the, in the, in the public education conversation, but I actually think you're going to see a, an even further decline in public education, because if you look at what's happening to the state universities, they're being hollowed out. And, you know, for a combination of budget cuts, rising medical costs, things like that. If you look at California, you say this is the place that, you know, all the innovation, all the ingenuity came out of. Why did it come out of there? Because lots of engineers went to California. Why did they go? First of all, they went there for defense and uh, department spending. There was a lot, Lockheed and all those companies. Mm -hmm. Secondly, California had the best state education system in the world, kindergarten through University of California, Berkeley, PhD programs. Third, it had fantastic infrastructure from you know, parks to, to playgrounds to highways. It's now the whole state is collapsing. And these all these universities are doing awfully. So, I, I mean, I worry a lot about what happens when the state university system in this country continues to go down. It's great for Yale, but it's terrible for the country. It's not great for Yale. 
I mean, it's, it's, well, you get it's better like, students, and like, you know, you can like get you can poach some faculty, but in the long run, it's not good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, Don't laugh. We have actually done that. It's so. the same. We, we've we've done it. It's the same. It's it's the same though as the as the the dynamic between China and the U.S. I yeah. Mean, yeah. You, know, you to, want a bigger pot. It's a positive yeah. sum yeah. game yeah. That, to have these these very these institutions yeah. thrive, and we we certainly want them to. Um, so come back, you know, to sort of sum up. America seems a little threatened on the economic front. It actually, or judging from what you said, maybe is beginning to refocus its priorities appropriately in foreign policy, moving away from counterterrorism a little bit more toward focusing on the big, on, on relationships with the strongest countries and, and uh, taking a more mature view. I mean, if you had, your, your last uh, five minutes with President Obama, what would you tell him? You know, I do think Obama gets this new world. I think that part of it is that he did, you know, he does understand it because, I mean, not to say this now is so politically charged and, you know, people will, will, you know, will run this on videotapes, but he does have roots in, uh, in Africa. He has a background, you know, that he, he lived in East Asia. So I think it is not as foreign to him, and he does get it. And I, I have sensed that from watching his, his actions, from the few conversations I've had. He does seem to understand we're in a different world. And he doesn't view it as a threat. I think he understands this new world. The question is, as a society, you know, do we understand it? Can we get to the point where you know, we can deal with a problem like terrorism? as one among many of the problems we have, rather than view everything in this kind of obsessive win-lose way. I mean, think about it. We're down to 400 members of Al-Qaeda, maybe fewer, and President Obama can't say, you know, the, the engagement in Afghanistan is over, thank you, we're gonna scale back. That would be regarded as appeasement, as surrender. Uh, it is very difficult. Everything is viewed from the prism of appeasement, surrender, and things like that. So do that's you, the part really I worry about. Do you really think that position would be politically costly? I think it, it, would, it, would, it would create a firestorm of, of political opposition, which would pummel him as being weak. And he doesn't want to seem weak. I think that in the short term... You think you there know, are congressional districts that would swing because he decided no, to pull out of Afghanistan? No, no certainly not. No, certainly not. But it's more... A, the general mood of the country is one where you're always better off erring on the side of being hawkish rather than dovish. If you're a Democrat. If you're a Democrat. You need to cover that flank. That's what the military understood with him. Maybe that's a Which is why they leaked it. It would be worth testing yeah, it. It would be worth testing it and saying, you know what? Let's grow up. There is no such thing as perfect security. The real challenge of terrorism is how we respond to it. There will be at some point some attack somewhere because there are enough loonies in the world and technology is widely available. And our challenge is to be resilient, to show these people that it doesn't work. You know, I mean, terrorism is an unusual a military tactic in that it depends on the response of the onlooker. If you are not terrorized, it didn't work. So it really depends on how you take it. And I give the Indian government enormous credit after the Mumbai attacks with enormous pressure being placed on them by a nationalist opposition party that was saying you should go out and strike you know, the, the, the camps where this was all trained. And there are uh, LET camps. You know where they are. It could have been done. They understood that that would set off a chain reaction that would probably be to the detriment of the region, of India, uh, and they didn't do it. And they said, no, we're going to absorb the error. We're going to focus on what we did wrong in terms of homeland security type issues. 
I don't worry when people sometimes say, you know, a backpack bombing would totally throw this country into chaos. Actually, that's not true. This is a $14 trillion economy. If some mall somewhere in, the, in America, three malls, got, you know, would shut down for two days, it would make no difference. What I worry about is not what happens in those malls, but what happens in Washington, where, of course, we would go nuts. And we would all be strip searched every time we approached an airport we, or a mall. You know, it's that overreaction that I, I think we need to get more mature about. Um, we so, survived September 11th, 2001, better than September 15th, 2008, actually. In what sense? And, and in terms of people's prosperity in daily lives. I mean, the, 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 oh, the, yes, the of economic, course, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. Of course, and that was the first one, so it was the biggest shock. I mean, if right. you look at the effect of terrorism on economic activity, so it's September 11th, it takes three months for the markets to return. Right, right. But by the time you get to the London attack, 7-7, the market was back up to the same place within 24 hours. Because people realize, ultimately, we have vast, rich, complex societies, and that one, you know, two, two or three subway stations don't derail the British economy, let alone the American economy. But, you know, I would think we've got to get there. The thing I would spend my time with Obama talking to him about is more this competitiveness issue. I'm a fan of the president, but I really don't think he gets, maybe because he's not been in private business himself, he doesn't get the urgency with which we have to really hustle in the world today. Um, and, and that's the best way to put it. We really have to hustle because everybody else is hustling. Mm -hmm. Would you tell him to put some business person somewhere in his government? <laughs> I see Henry Schacht. I would tell him <laughs> to, to put Henry, the former CEO of Lucent, a spectacularly successful um, businessman, scientifically trained. But he, yeah, I mean, I do mm -hmm. think he needs, he, it's not just business. I think A, he needs, there's a, there's a perception problem where he doesn't have an ambassador to the business community, which is a problem. I think the other part of it is you need people who know how to do stuff. Um, you are well aware of this because Rick is one of the most successful ma managers I've ever seen. A, a lot of management is not coming up with great ideas. The, people have good ideas. It's figuring out how to implement them. And I don't get the sense there are enough people in the White House who actually understand how to get stuff done. The one place where you see it spectacularly successful is education, actually. Arne Duncan yeah, has achieved great. more as Secretary of Education than any Secretary of Education in my, that I can remember. I, I mean, that. I actually don't think there is one. And why is that? Because he actually ran the Chicago school system. <laughs> you know, he, th th this is not just writing a policy paper for Brookings. This is actually <laughs> going out there and figuring out how do you make this happen? How do you get on the ground? What deals do you make? What compromises do you make? Uh, you know, Lou Gerstner uh, likes to say strategy is execution. You know, if you can't execute it, you might have the best idea in the world. It doesn't make a difference. It's irrelevant. And I do think that that's been part of the problem for this administration. But I do, if, since we're close, I want to say I am very much of the view that in September 2008, we were facing a Great Depression. If you look at every economic in index that I, that I can you know, look at, if you look at the contraction in private borrowing, if you look at the destruction of employment, uh, right. 1.7 million jobs in one quarter, 2.1 in the next quarter. This was well. all the worst in 65 years. You had, n you had literally seen nothing like this since the Great Depression. Sure. And the administration managed to restore stability to the financial system through a series of actions you know, regarding the banks, regarding the mortgage industry, the car industry. And people forget that. It was so successful that, of course, now people say, what crisis? We didn't need to do anything. If, you know, we, we, we spent all this money needlessly. So if he gets credit for nothing else, I do think President Obama deserves a lot of credit for very good crisis management 
at a period which was very critical and where, frankly, all evidence we have is that the other candidate would have done an extraordinarily bad job. And the only thing you have to do is read Hank Paulson's memoirs to read his absolute horror at the prospect of John McCain becoming president as a, as a conservative Republican. So two cheers for President <laughs> final, final question. What, how can Yale students contribute to the solution of these problems? Oh, gosh. I mean, Yale students, are, as you know, Rick, are not going to be the, pro the, the problem. Yale, <laughs> Yale students will do fine. Yale students will, will be that part of the American economy that is going to thrive in a globalized world. Uh, you're going to have, actually, a larger, you know, the, the larger world as your oyster. And to the extent that you can actually engage with that world and travel and learn languages and know more about it, you will find yourselves in, in a very good position. American businesses are thriving for precisely that reason. American businesses have their problems, but they're much more and better globalized than, say, German businesses. You know, German businesses are still dealing with the problem that all their employees speak German, <laughs> which, you know, doesn't sound like a big problem, but if you're trying to run an operation with, with you know, factories in 25 countries, they're not all going to speak German for you, you know, and you've got to figure out what to do, and you don't have a, a language, and as a result, you haven't built a culture of multinational management which American companies have. So you have enormous advantages if you can learn how to take advantage of this, this you know, globalized world. But I would say to you, you're, you, know, you are going to live in a country where you have some obligations. For those of you who live in the United States, uh, you will have obligations to your fellow citizens and to your country to try and make sure that you're not, that this doesn't turn into Brazil or a caricature of Brazil in the old days, where there's this elite that is doing fantastically, living in gated communities, able to access capital uh, labor around the world, but is in some way engaged in a civic fashion with the, with the society as a whole. Because otherwise, we will end up with a very strange economy. And what I worry about more than the economy is the politics of a world like that. The politics of a world with a collapsing middle class are not going to be pretty. That is the world of the 1930s. Well, thank you very much. It's a fabulous day.